Hello, this is Don Marshall. I know this isn't normally how we start off episodes, but I wanted to pop in briefly and just give a quick thank you to all of you. This is the final part of our Silmarillion Sunday. Thank you so much for sticking with this. The Silmarillion is a tough book, and I hope that you feel a sense of pride once you've finished this, because not everybody can make it through this. It is by no means an easy read. I do also want to give a thank you to everyone that has watched this over on my Twitch channel, live as it was airing, or the replays over on YouTube. I also once again need to apologize. There will be a faint thumping that you hear in the background of this particular episode. That is my tortoise. Without further ado, thank you, and let's begin our final episode of Silmarillion Sunday. Hello! Welcome to Silmarillion Sunday. I am Don Marshall 72 known as the obscure Lord of the Rings facts guy. If you have made it this far, you are on the final episode of Silmarillion Sunday. There is going to be no more book after this unless you want me to read the index, which I'm not going to do. I do want to give very quick thank you to all of you for sticking around with us this far. We have been doing this over on Twitch for roughly eight or nine months. I started posting these to YouTube just a few months ago. If you're listening to this in audio form, thank you so much for sticking with us. I'm happy that we were able to get through this, and I hope that I have been able to make the Silmarillion a little bit more digestible for all of you. I'm also happy to say that if you're watching this on YouTube during the few days after this is live, that these will be available in podcast form. The link to it should be available in the description of this video and every video that contains Silmarillion Sunday within YouTube. You can also uh, search my link tree. It is linktree.com slash donmarshall72. You should be able to find it. Today's episode is going to focus on the Third Age. It is more or less a recap of everything that happened during the Lord of the Rings trilogy with a couple of added details. It is fairly long, so we will likely have a longer episode today. We are currently on page 285, and it goes until page 304. So, without further ado... Let's get started on the final episode of Silmarillion Sunday. Of the rings of power and the third age in which this tale comes to its end. Of old there was Sauron, the Maya, whom the Sindar in Beleriand named Gorthaur. In the beginning of Arda, Melkor seduced him to his allegiance, and he became the greatest and most trusted of the servants of the enemy and the most perilous, for he could assume many forms, and the long and for long, if he willed, he could still appear noble and beautiful, so as to deceive all but the most wary. When Thangorodrim, which is the uh, fortress that Sauron's master Morgoth created, 
When Thangorodrim was broken and Morgoth overthrown, Sauron put on his fair hue again and did obsience. I don't know what that word means, full disclosure. O-B-E-I-S-A-N-C-E. -E. And did obsence to Aonwe, the herald of Manwe, and abjured all his evil deeds. So he's basically saying, I repent. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. And some hold that this was not at first falsely done, but that Sauron in truth repented, if only out of fear, being dismayed by the fall of Morgoth and the great wrath of the lords of the West. But it was not within the power of Aonwe to pardon those of his own order, meaning uh, a Maya, because Sauron is a Maya, and so is Aonwe. They are more like lesser spirits or angels, if you'd like to think of it like that. And he commanded Sauron to return to Amman, and there receive the judgment of Manwe. Manwe is the king of the Varda. Then Sauron was ashamed, and he was unwilling to return in humiliation, and to receive from the Valar a sentence, it might be, of long servitude in proof of his good faith. For under Morgoth his power had been great. Therefore, when Aonwe departed, he hid himself in Middle-earth, and fell back into his evil. For the bonds that Morgoth had laid upon him were very strong. In the great battle and the tumults of the fall of Thangorodrim, there were mighty convulsions in the earth, and Beleriand was broken and laid waste, and northward and westward many lands sank beneath, beneath the waters of the great sea. In the east, in Osiriand, the walls of Ered Lewin were broken, and the great gap was made in them towards the south, and a gulf of the sea flowed in. Into the gulf the river Loon fell by a new course, and it was called therefore the Gulf of Loon. That country had of old been named Lindon by the Noldor, and this name it bore thereafter. And many of the Eldar still dwelt there, lingering, unwilling to yet forsake Beleriand, where they had fought and labored long. Gilgalad, son of Fingon, was their king, and with him was Elrond, half-elven, son of Eärendil, the mariner, and brother of Elros, the first king of Numenor. A little bit of a, not a history lesson, but a, a lineage uh, dive that we go into there. Gil-galad, son of Fingon, one of the kings of the Noldor. Um, and then Elrond, who we see in the movies. Upon the shores of the Gulf of Loon, the elves, the elves built their haven and named them Mithlond. And there they held many ships, for the harborage was good. From the Grey Havens, the Eldar ever and anon set sail, ever and anon meaning, I think meaning eventually, like every once in a while, fleeing from the darkness of the days of the earth. For by the mercy of the Valar, the firstborn could still follow the straight road and return, if they would, to their kindred in Eresea and Valinor beyond the encircling seas. Okay, so kind of a uh, brief aside, because that, that, that one sentence has quite a lot in it. So the continent of Valinor that was on the flat plain of Middle-earth doesn't exist anymore on the flat plain. Middle-earth is now round, and the continent of the Undying Lands of Valinor is basically in, like, another dimension, kind of, like a different plane of existence, so similar to, like, a Dungeons & Dragons kind of thing. It's on a different plane. Elves have the ability to get there still through something called the Straight Road, which has a capital S and capital R. It's like a proper noun uh, word. 
So if they want to, the elves can still go there. Others of the Eldar who were who crossed the mountains of Ered Luin in the age and passed into the inner lands, inner lands basically of Middle-earth. Many of these were Teleri, survivors of Doriath and Osiriand, and they established realms among the Sylvan elves in woods and mountains far from the sea, for which, nonetheless, they ever yearned in their hearts. Only in Eregion, which men called Halen, did elves of Noldoran race establish the last realm beyond Ered Luin. Eregion, uh, just as a brief aside, Eregion was um, the area which is east of the Misty Mountains, kind of like around where the Shire is and Bree and slightly south of that. All that area of like um, where the Fellowship is traveling south to get to the Mines of Moria, that used to be Eregion. Only in Eregion, which men called Halin, did elves of Noldoran race establish a lasting realm beyond the Arid Luin. Eregion was nigh to the great mansions of the dwarves that were named Khazad-dûm, which is the mines of Moria in the movies. But by the elves, Had, oh, I'm going to mispronounce this, Had-Hodron, Had-Hodron. But by the elves, Had-Hodron, and afterwards Moria. From Ost en Etiel, the city of the elves, the high road ran to the west gate of Khazad-dûm, for the friendship, for a friendship arose between the dwarves and the elves, such as has never elsewhere been, to the en enrichment of both those people. In Eregion, the craftsmen of the Gwaith i Mirdan, the people of the jewelsmiths, surpassed in cunning all that have ever wrought, save only Feanor himself. And indeed, greatest in skill among them was Celebrimbor, son of Kurufin. Kurufin is one of Feanor's sons. And indeed, greatest in skill among them was Celebrimbor, son of Kurufin, who was estranged from his father and remained in Nargothrond when Celegorm and Kurufin were driven forth, as is told in the Quenta Silmarillion. I'll unpack that just a little bit. So that particular sentence says that the dwarves and the elves shared a friendship, which is partially why the Mines of Moria door is in Elvish. The um, door itself is written in an Elvish script. The password is the word friend in Elvish. And the reason why is because the elves used that as more or less their private entrance to the western part of the Mines of Moria, which was a thriving metropolis at the time. Let's continue. Elsewhere in Middle-earth, there was peace for many years. Yet the lands were, for the most part, savage and desolate, save only where the people of Beleriand came. Many elves dwelt there indeed, and they had dwelt through the countless, as they had dwelt through the countless years, wandering free in the wide lands, far from the sea. But they were Avari, to whom the deeds of Beleriand were but a rumor, and Valinor only a distant name. This is a reference from a very long time ago. Um, so the Avari, I believe it's a translation that means the Forsaken Ones. Off the top of my head, I don't remember, but the Avari are estranged from the rest of the elves. They are uh, sort of the folks that didn't really get involved in any of the things that happened in the uh, First Age. But they were Avari, to whom the deeds of Beleriand were but a rumor, and Valinor only a distant name. And in the south, and in the furthest east, men multiplied. 
and most of them turned to evil, for Sauron was at work. Seeing the desolation of the world, Sauron said in his heart that the Valar, having overthrown Morgoth, had again forgotten Middle-earth, and his pride grew apace. And look, and he looked, he looked with hatred on the Eldar, and feared the men of Numenor, who came back at the wilds with their ships to the shores of Middle-earth. But for long, he dissembled his mind and concealed the dark designs that, his, that, that he shaped in his heart. Men he found the easiest to sway of all the peoples of Middle-earth. But long he sought to persuade the elves to his service, for he knew that the firstborn had the greater power, and he went far and wide among them, and his hue was still that of one both fair and wise. You'll remember from the last part of this series, during the Second Age, Sauron changed his form to something beautiful and fair and started calling himself Anatar, which means bringer of gifts. So Sauron, in all of his beauty, decided to try and subtly take over Middle-earth again. Only to Lindon did he not come, for Gilgalad and Elrond doubted him and his fair seeming. And though they knew not who in truth he was, they would not admit him, they would not admit him to the land. But elsewhere the elves received him gladly, and few among them hearkened to the messengers of Lind from Lindon bidding them beware. For Sauron took to himself the name of Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, and they had at first much profit from his friendship. And he said to them, Alas, for the weakness of the great. For a mighty king is Gilgalad, and wise in all lore is Master Elrond. Yet they will not aid me in my labors. Can it be that they do not desire to see other lands become blissful as their own? But wherefore should Middle-earth remain forever in desolate and dark, whereas the elves could make it as fair as Eresea, nay, even as Valinor? And since you have not returned thither as you might, I perceive that you love this Middle-earth as I do. Is it not then our task to labor together for its enrichment, and for the raising of all the elven kindreds and want that wander here untaught to the heights of power and knowledge which those have who are beyond the sea? It was in Eregion, again that sort of south of the Shire, part of Middle-earth. It was in Eregion that the counsels of Sauron were most gladly received, for in that land the Noldor desired ever to increase the skill and subtlety of their work. Moreover, they were not at peace in their hearts, since they had refused to return to the West, and they desired both to stay in Middle-earth, which indeed they loved, and yet to enjoy the bliss of those that had departed. Therefore they hearkened to Sauron, meaning they listened, and they learned of him many things, for his knowledge was great. In those days the smiths of Ost and Ithil surpassed all that they had contrived before, and they took thought and made rings of power. And Sauron guided their labors, and he was aware of all that they did, for his desire was to set a bond upon the elves and to bring them under his vigilance. Now the elves made many rings, but secretly Sauron made one ring to rule all the others, and their power was bound up with it, to be subject wholly to it, and, at, and to last only so long as it should, too should last. 
and much of the strength and the will of Sauron passed into that one ring. For the power of the elven rings was very great, and, th and that which should govern them must be a thing of surpassing potency. And Sauron forged it in the mountain of fire in the land of shadows. And while he wore the one ring, he could perceive all the things that were done by means of the lesser ring. And he could see and govern the very thoughts of those that wore them. A pause there just as a brief aside. That is what makes the one ring so powerful. A lot of people ask, what is, what is the power? What powers do the one ring give you? The real power is control over others. Specifically for Sauron, it was control over the other people that had the rings. The elven rings that are not the three. We'll come to that in a minute, but there are a bunch of rings besides the three main ones we learn about in the movies. There are a bunch more. There are the rings given to the dwarves, the rings given to the men. The men become the Nazgul. And that is Sauron's true power. That is the ring, his domination over the will of other people. But the elves were not so lightly to be caught. As soon as Sauron set the one ring upon his finger, they were aware of him, and they knew him, and perceived that he would be master of them, and of all things that they wrought. Then, in anger and fear, they took off their rings. But he, finding that he was betrayed and the elves were not deceived, was filled with a wrath. And he came against them with open war, demanding that all the rings should be delivered to him, since the elven smiths could not have attained to their making without his lore and counsel. But the elves fled from him, and three of their rings they saved, and bore them away, and hid them. Now these were the three that had been last, that had last been made, and they possessed the greater powers. Narya, Nenya, and Vilya, they were named the ring of fire, and of water, and of air. So Narya is fire, Nenya is water, and Vilya is air. Set with a ruby, adamant, and sapphire. And of all the elven rings, Sauron most desired to possess them. For those who had them in their keeping could ward off the decay of time and postpone the weariness of the world. That is a big reason why we see Rivendell and Lothlorien look so beautiful. Elrond and Galadriel, who are the, um, or excuse me, um, yeah, Galadriel uh, is literally holding the um, beauty of Valinor in Lothlorien through her own sheer will through the ring. Uh, Elrond is not a, a ring bearer at this time, I don't believe. But Sauron could not discover them, for they were given into the hands of the wise, who concealed them and never again used them openly while Sauron kept the ruling ring. Therefore the three remained unsullied, for they were forged by Celebrimbor alone, and the hand of Sauron had never touched them. Yet they also were subject to the one. From that time war never ceased between Sauron and the elves, and Eregion was laid to waste and Celebrimbor slain, and the doors of Moria were shut. In that time, the stronghold and refuge of Imladris, that men called Rivendell, was founded by Elrond Half-Elven, and long it endured. But Sauron gathered into his hands all the remaining rings of power, and he dealt them out to the other peoples of Middle-earth, 
hoping thus to bring them under his sway, all those that desired secret power beyond the measure of their kind. Seven rings he gave to the dwarves, but to men he gave nine, for men proved in this matter, as in others, the readiest to his will. And all those rings that he governed he perverted, the more easily since he had a part in their making. And they were accursed, and they betrayed in the end all those that used them. The dwarves indeed proved tough and hard to tame. They ill endured the domination of others, and the thoughts of their hearts were hard to fathom. Nor can they be turned to the shadow, nor can they be turned to, to shadows. They used their rings only for the getting of wealth, but wrath and the overmastering of greed in gold were kindled in their hearts, of which evil enough came after came to the prophet of Sauron. It is said that the foundation of each of the seven hordes of the dwarf kings of old was the golden ring. But all those hordes long ago were plundered, and dragons devoured them. And of the seven rings, some were consumed in fire, and some Sauron recovered. Men proved easier to ensnare. Those who used the nine rings became mighty in their days. In their day, kings, sorcerers, and warriors of old. They obtained glory and great wealth, yet it turned to their undoing. They had, as it seemed, unending life, yet life became unendurable to them. They could walk, if they would, unseen by all eyes in the world beneath the sun, and they could see things in worlds invisible to mortal men. But too often they beheld only the phantoms and delusions of Sauron, and one by one, sooner or later, according to their native strength and to the good or evil of their wills in the beginning, they fell under the thraldom of the ring. Thraldom is like enslavement. They fell under the thraldom of the ring that they bore and the domination of the one, which was Sauron's. And they entered into the realm of shadows. The Nazgul they were, the ringwraiths, the enemy's most terrible servants. Darkness went with them, and they cried with the voices of death. Brief side note and a bit of Lord of the Rings trivia. The screech that you hear in the Lord of the Rings movies that is the Nazgul is a combination of a donkey screaming, and if I'm remembering this correctly, the wife of one of the producers, or it may also be Peter Jackson's wife. I'll have to look that up if uh, the Twitch chat could let me know. can let you all know here. All right, let's continue. Now Sauron's lust and pride increased until he knew no bounds, and he determined to make himself master of all things in Middle-earth, and to destroy the elves, and to, com and to compass, if he might, the downfall of Numenor. He brooked no freedom nor any rivalry, and he named himself Lord of the Earth, a mask he still could wear, so that if he wished he might deceive the eyes of men, seeming to them wise and fair. But he ruled rather by force and fear, and if they might avail, and the, oh, excuse me, he ruled rather by force and fear, and if they, and if, and they might, if they might, excuse me, it's going to take me a very long time to get through the sentence. But he ruled rather by force and fear, if they might avail, and those who perceived his shadow spreading over the world called him 
the Dark Lord, and named him the enemy. And he gathered again under his government all things, all the evil things of the days of Morgoth that remained on earth or beneath it. And the orcs were at his command and multiplied like flies. Thus the black years began, which the elves call the days of flight. In that time, many of the elves of Middle-earth fled to Lindon, and thence over the seas never to return. And many were destroyed by Sauron and his servants. But in Lindon, Gil-galad still remained, still maintained his power. And Sauron dared not as yet to pass the mountains of Ered-Lúin, nor to assail the havens. And Gil-galad was aided by the Numenorians. Elsewhere, Sauron reigned. And those who would be free took refuge in the fastness of the woods and mountains, and ever fear pursued them. In the east and south, well nigh all men were under his dominion, and they grew strong in those days, and built many towns and walls of stone, and they were numerous and fierce in war and armed with iron. To them, Sauron was both king and god, and they feared him exceedingly, for he surrounded his abode with fire. Yet there came at length a stay in the onslaught of Sauron upon the Westlands, for as is told in the Akalabeth, which is the part that we read last time, the uh, part about the Numenor, the island of Numenor, for as is told in the Akalabeth, he was challenged by the might of Numenor, and great was, so great was the power and splendor of the Numenorians in the noontime of their realm that the servants of Sauron could not withstand them. And hoping to accomplish by cunning what he could not achieve by force, he left Middle-earth for a while, and went to Numenor as a hostage of Tar-Kalion, the king. And there he abode, until at last by his craft he had corrupted the hearts of most of that people, and set them at war with the Valar. And so encompassed their ruin, as he had long desired. But that ruin was more terrible than Sauron had foreseen, for he had forgotten the might of the Lords of the West in their anger. Seems to be a recurring theme between Sauron and his master Morgoth, just over and over again, constantly doubting the power of the Valar. The world was broken, and the land was swallowed up, and the seas rose over it, and Sauron himself went down into the abyss. But his spirit arose and fled back to the dark winds to Middle-earth, seeking a home. There he found that the power of Gilgalad had grown great in the years of his absence, and it was spread now over wide regions of the north and west. And he passed beyond the misty mountains and the great river, even to the borders of the Greenwood the Great, and was drawing nigh to the strong places where once he had dwelt secure. Then Sauron withdrew to his fortress in the Black Lands and meditated war. In that time, those of the Numenorians who were saved from the destruction fled eastward, as is told in the Akalabeth. Chief of those was Earendil, the tall, and his sons Isildur and Anarion. Those looking to uh, avoid spoilers for the Amazon Lord of the Rings TV show may want to stop here. I will not blame you, but this is likely if my theories and my guesses are correct, this is likely where the Amazon Lord of the Rings TV show will start. If it is after that, and the TV show has already come out and it's years from now, hopefully I was right. But we'll see what happens. 
The chief of these was, was, were Eärendil the Tall and his sons Isildur and Anarion. Kinsmen of the king they were, descendants of Elros, Elrond's brother. But they had been unwilling to listen to Sauron and had refused to make war on the lords of the west, manning their ships with all who remained faithful. They forsook the lands of Numenor, ere ruin came upon it. And they were mighty men, and their ships were strong and tall. But the tempests overtook them, and they were borne aloft on hills of water, even to the clouds. And they descended upon Middle-earth like birds of the storm. Elendil was cast up by the waves in the land of Lindon, and he was befriended by Gilgalad. Thence he passed up the river Lune, and beyond Eredluin he established his realm, and his people dwelt in many places in Eriador, about the course, uh, courses of the Lune, and the, Bra the Branduin, which is a, another river in that part. Also, I am seeing from chat that it was Fran Walsh, which is uh, Peter Jackson's wife, screaming. Uh, and it also looks like Peter Jackson's wife, uh, Fran, was sick at the time. So a sick woman and a donkey combined to make the Nazgul scream. Fun bit of trivia. Let's continue. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Of course, I've lost my place again. <laughs> He established his realm, and his people dwelt in many places in Eriador about the courses of the Lune and the Branduin. But his chief city was Anuminas, beside the waters of Lake Nenual. N-E-N-U-I-A-L. Nenual. I think that's right. But it's the last episode. At this point, if you don't expect me to mispronounce things, what have you been doing? At Fornost, upon the North Downs, also the Numenorians dwelt, and in Cardolan, and in the hills of Rudin, Rudar, and towers they raised up upon Emin Bireid, and upon Amonsul. And they remain, and there remain many barrows and ruined works in those places, but the towers of Emin Bireid still look towards the sea. A fun fact about the Lord of the Rings movie, you'll may, you may recognize a name that just happened in that paragraph. Amon Sul is mentioned in the Fellowship of the Ring movie. Amon Sul is Weathertop, the place where the Ringwraiths attack the hobbits and Frodo gets stabbed with the Morgul blade. Um, you will hear Aragorn say, This was once the great, I think it's, this was once the great watchtower of Amon Sul. And then he goes, We will rest here tonight. Um, but yes, Amon Sul used to be a large tower, one of the sort of watchtowers, and if I'm remembering correctly, this is where one of the uh, Palantir, the seeing stones, uh, the thing that Sauron has with the big eye in it, this is where they find uh, one of those, or where they keep one of those, I should say. What else we got? Okay. Isildur and Anarion bore away southward, and at the last they brought their ships up, to, up, the, great river, up the great river Anduin that flows out of Ravanian into the western sea in the bay of Belfalas. And they established a realm in those lands that were after called Gondor, whereas the northern kingdom was called Arnor. So there's two um, kingdoms of humans right now. In the north, kind of Shire-ish area, in the west northwestern part of Middle-earth, and the south, in the sort of southeastern part 
just west of Mordor called Gondor. So we've got Gondor and Arnor. Long before, in the days of their power, the mariners of Numenor had established a haven and strong places about the mouths of the Anduin, which is the river. In despite of Sauron in the black land that lay nigh upon their east. So Mordor is very close. In the latter days to that haven came only the faithful of Numenor, and many, therefore, of the folk of the coastlands in that region were in whole or in part akin to the elf friends and the people of Elendil. So basically all of the people that lived in Numenor that weren't corrupted by Sauron went there, sort of like the Gondor-ish area by the mouth of the river. Uh, excuse me. And many, therefore, of the folk of that coastland in that region were in whole or in part akin to the elf friends and the people of Elendil, and they welcomed his sons. The chief city of this southern realm was Osgiliath, through the, mist, through the midst of which the great river flowed. And the Numenorians built there a great bridge, upon which there were towers and houses of stone wonderful to behold. And tall ships came out of the sea, to the quay of the city. Other strong places they built also up upon either hand. Minas Ithil, the tower of the rising moon, eastward upon the shoulder of the mountains of shadow, as a threat to Mordor. And to the westward, Minas Anor, the tower of the setting sun, at the feet of Mount Mindolwin, as a shield against the wild men of the dales. In Minas Ithil was the house of Isildur, and in Minas Anor, the house of Anarion. But they shared the realm between them, and their thrones were set side by side in the great hall of Osgiliath. These were the chief dwellings of the Numenorians in Gondor. But other works, marvelous and strong, they built in the lands, they built in the land in the days of their power. At the Argonoth, which you will also see in the Lord of the Rings. There's a lot of Lord of the Rings references here. I want to mention just a few. So you'll hear about Osgiliath, which is the city that you see in the Two Towers and in The Return of the King that Faramir is trying to defend from the orcs. It is, uh, you'll also hear about the Argonoth, which is featured in the Fellowship of the Ring. They are the two giant stone statues with the hands passed in front of them, like almost like a stop. That is to mark the, uh, I believe it's northern border of Gondor. But other works, marvelous and strong, they built in the lands in the days of their power, at the Argonoth and the Aglarod, and at Erek, and in the circle of the Angrenost, which men called Isengard, they made the pinnacle of Orthanc, of unbreakable stone. So all of these things that you see in the original trilogy are more or less ancient relics. When we see Middle-earth in the movie, it is, it is a, a, a relic of ancient days, shall we say. Everything that is there still is old, broken, not really in its prime anymore. All of these things were created in the Second Age. Many treasures and great heirlooms of virtue and wonder the exiles had brought from Numenor. And of these, the most renowned were the seven stones and the white tree. The white tree 
was grown from the fruit of Nimloth the fair that stood in the courts of the king at Armenelos in Numenor, ere Sauron burned it. And Nimloth was in its turn descended from the tree of Tyrion that was an image of the eldest trees, white Telperion, which Yavanna caused to grow in the lands of the Valar. The tree, memorial of the Eldar, and the light of Valinor was planted in Minas Ethiel before the house of Isildur, since he it was that had saved the fruit from destruction, but the stones were divided. A brief history lesson there, because I know that's a lot of names to get through. So this particular tree that is in uh, Osgiliath is a descendant of a tree from Numenor. That tree was a descendant of a tree in the Undying Lands called Laurelin and Telperion. They are two trees that literally produced light that caused the sort of day and night and twilight cycle um, before the sun and moon were created in Tolkien. That's like chapters three or four, I think, and I think we're on like chapter 26 or something at this point. So that is uh, where the tree comes from. You also see uh, that tree in the uh, Lord of the Rings movie. That's the one uh, Pippin sees in Minas Tirith. I lost my place, I apologize. Here we go. Three Elendil took the stones. Three Elendil took, and his sons each two. Those of Elendil were set in towers upon Emenberaid and upon Amon Sul, and in the city of Anumanas. But those of his sons were at Minas Ethil and Minas Anor, and at Orthanc, and in Asgiliath. Now these stones had this virtue, that those that looked therein might perceive in them things far off, whether in place or in time. For the most part, they revealed only things near to another kindred stone. For the stones, each called to each. But those who possessed great strength of will and of mind might learn to direct their gaze whither they would. Thus, the Numenorians were aware of many things that their enemies wished to conceal and little escaped their vigilance in the days of their might. It is said that the towers of er Emen Beraid were not built indeed by the exiles of Numenor, but were raised by Gilgalad for Elendil, his friend. And the seeing stone of Emen Beraid was set in Elostirion, the tallest of the towers. Thither Elendil would repair, and thence he would gaze out over the sundering seas when the yearning of exile was upon him. And it is believed that thus he would at whiles see far away even the tower of Avalone upon Eresea, where the master stone abode and yet abides. So if he tried really hard enough, Elendil might be able to actually see the undying lands. These stones were gifts of the Eldar to Amandil, father of Elendil for the comfort of the faithful of Numenor in their dark days, when the elves might come no longer to that land under the shadow of Sauron. They were called the Palantiri, those that watch from afar. But all those that were brought to Middle-earth long ago were lost. 
Thus, the exiles of Numenor established their realms in Arnor and in Gondor. But ere many years had passed, it became manifested that, other, that their enemy, Sauron, had also returned. He came in secret, as has been told, to his ancient kingdom of Mordor beyond the Ethel Duath, the Mountains of Shadow. And that country marched with Gondor upon the east. There above the valley of Gorgoroth was built his fortress, vast and strong, Barad-dûr, the Dark Tower. And there was a fiery mountain in that land that the elves named Orodruin. Indeed, for that reason, Sauron had set there his dwelling long before, for he used the fire that welled there from the heart of the earth in his sorceries and in his forgings. And in the midst of that, of the land of Mordor, he had fashioned the ruling ring. There now he brooded in the dark until he had wrought for himself a new shape, and it was terrible, for his fair semblance had departed forever and he was cast, when he was cast into the abyss at the drowning of Numenor. He took up again the great ring and clothed himself in power, and the malice of the eye of Sauron flew even from the great among the elves. Excuse me, and the malice of the eye of Sauron flew even of the great among the elves and men could endure. So basically his malice is so um, intense, his, his evil is so powerful that even the strongest are like, ah, uh, oh gosh, oh no. Now Sauron prepared war against the Eldar and the men of Westerness, which is what the men of Numenor are called and the fires of the mountain were wakened again. Wherefore, seeing the smoke of Orodruin from afar, and perceiving that Sauron had returned, the Numenorians named that mountain anew, Amon Amar, which is Mount Doom. A, a brief pause here, because this is something that I have seen so many times, uh, people bashing Tolkien for creating this amazing, flowery, complicated language and then creating six more languages, but calling the volcano Mount Doom. The mountain itself is called Orodruin and Amon Amar. That is a translation to Mount Doom. Is it creative? Uh, not really in terms of like Tolkien names. It is incredibly basic, but... Um, it gets the point across. It gets the point across. Okay, so I am actually gonna stop there for a second because we've been going for like 10 pages and I haven't taken any questions. Um, what we are about to get into is basically the start of the first Lord of the Rings movie. This is, from here on in, we are approaching the that prologue, that eight minute Galadriel voiceover. Um, the world is changed. I feel it in the water. All of that, that sort of voiceover thing that we hear. Um, sorry if I creeped anybody out with that Galadriel impression. Um, Kate Blanchett did an absolutely remarkable performance, but Galadriel's voice is so haunting. Okay, so a question from Saul Rosen. So did the ring corrupt his appearance like it did with Gollum, or did he change his appearance on his own? So he, Sauron, lost the ability to take uh, a fair or beautiful form um, when Numenor fell. Because when Numenor fell, Sauron was on Numenor and the giant tidal waves that enveloped the island um, basically reduced him down to like a spirit form. And his spirit, if you will, fled back to um, 
fled back to Mordor. And in doing so, he lost his ability to take a, uh, call it a fair shape, like a, a pleasant-to-look-upon shape. Um, so we don't actually know what Sauron looks like in this sort of new form in the Second Age. Um, and I don't know if the Amazon Lord of the Rings series will show us, but it would be very interesting to see um, what he looks like if they do decide to go that route. Chris from Space says, I think there is a metal band named Amon Amarth. That's awesome. So Rosen asks a follow-up question. Is his form similar to the Nine, meaning the Nine Nazgul? Um, that is possible. That is possible. It might be a little bit different, and I only say that because the Nazgul had bodies, and then those bodies began to decay. Sauron didn't necessarily have a body, per se, but did have uh, a spirit. So it's, it remained unclear, I think, for the time being. Okay, Magpie asks a question. Could Sauron have taken a bland, mediocre form? Could he have been unremarkable looking, or did he choose to look spooky? Magpie, great question. Um, could he choose to take a mediocre form? Absolutely. But, as has been told over the past 26 or so chapters of this remarkable book, Sauron is vain. Sauron is vain, Sauron is proud, and Sauron is powerful. So, he would want his form to reflect his own power. So, could he? Yes. Would he? No. I doubt it. I doubt it very much. All right. I think I will uh, keep going. I do not see any more questions, and we will continue. If some questions do pop up in the chat, though, I will uh, try and answer them as best I can. All right, let's continue. And Sauron gathered to him great strength of his servants out of the east and the south, and among them were not a few of the high race of Numenor. For in the days of the sojourn of Sauron in that land, the hearts of well-nigh all its people had been turned towards darkness. Therefore, many of those that sail, who sailed east in that time and made fortresses and dwellings upon the coasts were already bent to his will, and they served him still gladly in Middle-earth. But because of the power of Gilgalad, these renegades, lords both mighty and evil, for the most part took up their abodes in the Southlands far away. Yet two there were, Herumor, and Fuinor, who rose to power among the Haradrim, a great and cruel people that dwelt in the wide lands south of Mordor, beyond the mouths of Anduin. When, therefore, Sauron saw his time, he came with great force against the new realm of Gondor, and he took Minas Ethiel, and he destroyed the white tree of Isildur that grew there. But Isildur escaped, taking with him a seedling of the tree. He bent he went with his wife and his sons by ship down the river, and they sailed from the, mouth of the mouths of Anduin seeking Elendil. Meanwhile, Anarion held the mouths, oh, excuse me. Meanwhile, Anarion held Osgiliath against the enemy, and for that time drove him back to the mountains. But Sauron gathered his strength again, and Anarion knew that unless help should come, his kingdom would, no long, would, not, longer, would not long stand. Now Elendil, 
and Gilgalad took counsel together, for they perceived that Sauron would grow too strong and would overcome all his enemies one by one if they did not unite against him. Therefore, they made that league which is called the Last Alliance, and they marched east into Middle-earth, gathering a great host of elves and men, and they halted for a while at Imladris. It is said that the host that was assembled was fairer and more splendid in arms than any that had since been seen in Middle-earth, and none greater that has been mustered since the host of the Valar went against Thangorodrim. From Imladris, they crossed the Misty Mountains by many passes and marched down the river Anduin, and so came at last upon the host of Sauron on Dagorlod, the battle plain, which lies before the gate of the Black Land. This, the Dagorlod, is what will eventually become the Dead Marshes. All of the bodies that you see, the dead faces in the water that Sam sees, are the fallen elves and men that have not been allowed to rest because of the evil of Sauron. All living things were divided in that day, and some of every kind, even of beasts and birds, were found in either host, save the elves only. They alone were undivided and followed Gilgalad, for the dwarves, of the dwarves, few fought upon either side, but the kindred of Doran of Moria fought against Sauron. The host of Gilgalad and Elendil had the victory, for they might, for the might of the elves was still in those days, was great, was, excuse me, the host of Gilgalad and Elendil had the victory, for the might of the elves was still great in those days, and the Numenorians were strong and tall and terrible in their wrath. Against Eglos, the spear of Gilgalad, none could stand, and the sword of Elendil filled orcs and men with fear, for it shone with the light of the sun and of the moon, and it was named Narsil. Then Gilgalad and Elendil passed into Mordor and encompassed the stronghold of Sauron, and they laid siege to it for seven years, and suffered grievous losses by fire and by darts and bolts of the enemy, and Sauron sent many sorties against them. There, in the valley of Gorgoroth, Anarion, son of Elendil, was slain, and many others. But at the last, the siege was so straight that Sauron himself came forth, and he wrestled with Gilgalad and Elendil, and they both were slain. And the sword of Elendil was broken under him as he fell. But Sauron also was thrown down, and with the hilt shard of Narsil, Isildur cut the ruling ring from the hand of Sauron and took it for his own. Then Sauron was, for that time, vanquished, and he forsook his body, and his spirit fled far away and hid in waste places, and he took no visible shape again for many long years. pause there for a second because I do want to clarify something that sometimes gets lost in the book to movie translation or rather adaption. The physical act of cutting the one ring off of Sauron's finger um, is kind of left open to interpretation. It is thought by 
I'll call them book purists, people that really only consider the books a type of canon. Um, it is thought that Elendil and Gil-galad were the two to defeat Sauron. But if you watch in the movie, obviously, Isildur cut the ring from Sauron's hand, and in doing so destroyed him. But in the book, it is kind of left a little bit, shall we say, open to interpretation now that this second version exists. Because Isildur may have cut the ring off of Sauron's hand, but Sauron may have already been defeated at that point. It's kind of unclear. Personally, I'd like to think that Isildur struck the final blow. It's cooler, just by my own standards. You are free to uh, consider whatever is canon that you want. We do have another question that I saw that popped up. Uh, are these the groups that we see in the Return of the King? The Haradrim, yes. The Haradrim are the ones with the elephants, or the, the oilophants, I should say. Um, and then another question, are the spirits in the swamp evil and lure people to their death because of Sauron's evil, or is there another reason? So um, originally they were not evil. They were the fallen elves and men of the battle that fought against Sauron. But because of Sauron's malice and evil and Mordor, that plain, like that plain that was just grass, became a swamp and basically swallowed that bo their bodies and corrupted the spirits. So I would say that they're evil only so long as Sauron exists. But once the ring is, spoilers, once the ring is destroyed, um, the, uh, the spirits, I think at least, can be at rest. I don't know if Tolkien ever mentions that in any of his books. I'd have to go back and check. But they, I believe, are set free or their spirits are free. Uh, someone made a comment. So I'm free to think that Isildur was just going around the battlefield doing some battlefield looting? Uh, yes, you could certainly think that. Um, you'd probably be wrong, but <laughs> it's funny nonetheless. Okay, let's continue. Because we were approaching the second part of the prologue of the, uh, of the Fellowship of the Ring. Thus began the third age of the world, after the eldest days and the black years. And there was still hope in that time, and the memory of mirth. And for long the white tree of the Eldar flowered in the courts of the king, courts in the kings of men. And the seedlings which he had saved, Isildur planted in the citadel of Arnor, in the memory of his brother, ere he departed from Gondor. The servants of Sauron were routed and dispersed, yet they were not wholly destroyed. And though many men turned now from evil and became subject to the heirs of Elendil, so basically the men, the humans that worked for Sauron now pay tribute to Gondor as like uh, provinces. There's a word for it, I can't remember off the top of my head though. The dark tower was leveled to the ground yet its foundation remained, and it was not forgotten. The Numenorians indeed set a guard upon the land of Mordor, but none dared dwell there because of the terror of the memory of Sauron, and because of the mountain of fire that stood nigh to Barad-dûr, and the valley of Gorgoroth was filled with ash. I do want to make a quick note here. Um, 
Those of you that have played the video games Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War may know this already, but Mordor is not entirely a barren wasteland. Um, if you look at a map of Middle-earth, there is something called uh, the Sea of Nordinen, which is southeast, or, uh, yeah, southeast of the Mount Doom uh, volcano. And it's not an entirely barren wasteland. There are uh, green grasses and somewhat fertile lands and water supplies that um, you know they're able to access. Um, it is thought, I think, or I think the, the implication is that a lot of um, the slaves that were captured by Sauron or the warriors that were then turned into slaves uh, that Sauron had were there and worked there. Um, and I, I believe if you do play the, the Shadow of War or Shadow of Mordor video games, you get to go there or at the very least see it. I, I could be wrong about that. It's been ages since I've played the games. Just wanted to make that, that quick note that Mordor is not an entire barren wasteland. It is, for the most part, uh, not a great place to live and kind of looks like um, the moon, but, or, you know, a, a World War I uh, battlefield if you really want to get into Tolkien's influences, um, but it is also um, not entirely like that. All right, let's continue. Many of the elves and many of the Numenorians and of men who were their allies had perished in the battle and the siege, and Elendil the Tall and Gilgalad the High King were no more. Never again was such a host assembled, nor was there any such league of elves and men, for after Elendil's day the two kindred became estranged. The ruling ring passed out of the knowledge even of the wise in that age, yet it was not unmade for Isildur would not surrender it to Elrond and Círdan, who stood by. They counseled him to cast it into the fire of Orodruin, nigh at hand, in which it had been forged, so that it should perish, and the power of Sauron be forever diminished. And he should remain only as a shadow of malice in the wilderness. But Isildur refused, saying, This I will have as Weirgild for my father's death and my brother's. Was it not I that dealt the enemy his death blow? Oh, never mind. I am absolutely wrong about that. I totally forgot about that line. Yes, Isildur did cut the ring from Sauron's hand. My bad. I totally forgot about that line. You can stop spamming Isildur in the chat. We know it would have been a lot easier if they just yeeted Isildur into the lava, but then we wouldn't have the original trilogy. We would only have the Silmarillion. <clears throat> Thank you. All right. For the record, I am team don't yeet Isildur. I am team don't yeet. Okay, here we go. And the ring that he had held seemed to him exceedingly fair to look on and he would not suffer it to be destroyed. Taking it, therefore, he returned at first to Minas Anor, and there planted the white tree in memory of his brother Anarion. But soon he departed, and after he had given counsel to Meneldil, his brother's son, and had committed the realm to him the realm of the south, he bore away the ring to be an heirloom of his house, and marched north from Gondor by the way that Elendil had come. And he forsook the south kingdom, for he purposed to take up his father's realm in Eriador, 
far from the shadow of the black land. But Isildur was overwhelmed by a host of orcs that lay in wait in the misty mountains, and they descended upon him at unawares in his camp between the Greenwood and the Great River, nigh to the Loeg Nig... That's not a word I can pronounce. Nigh to the Loeg Ninglogloron, L-O-E-G space N-I-N-G-L-O-R-O-N. Again, I used to be a journalist. Pronouncing names on TV incorrectly was one of my biggest fears, um, and I do it quite regularly here, so I can only apologize. <laughs> All right. Nigh to Loeg Ninglogloron, the Gladden Fields, for he was heedless and set no guard, deeming that all his forces were overthrown. There well nigh were all his people were slain, and among them were his three elder sons, Elendur, Aratar, and Kirion. But his wife and youngest son, Valandil, he had left in Imladris when he went to the war. Isildur himself escaped by means of the ring, for he wore it and he was invisible to all eyes. But the orcs hunted him by scent and slot. I don't know what slot is in this context, I'm sorry. Isildur, oh, excuse me, by scent and slot, until he came to the river and plunged in. There the ring betrayed him and avenged its maker, for it slipped from his hand as he swam, and it was lost in the water. Then the orcs saw him, and he labored in the, in the stream, and they shot him with many arrows, and that was his end. Only three of his people came ever back over the mountains after long wandering, and of these, one was Otar, O-H-T-A-R, his esquire. To those keeping, he had given the shards of the sword of Elendil. Thus Narsil came in due time to the hands of Valandil, Isildur's heir, in Imladris, which is Rivendell. But the blade was broken, and its light was extinguished, and it was not forged anew. And Master Elrond foretold that this would not be done until the ruling ring should be found again, and Sauron should return. But the hope of elves and men was that these things might never come to pass. Volandil took up his abode in Enuminas, but his folk were diminished, and of the Numenorians and of the men of Eriador, there remained now too few people of the lands or to maintain all the places that Elendil built. In Dagorlad and in Mordor and upon the Gladden Fields many had fallen. And it came to pass after the days of Earendor, the seventh king that followed Valandil, that the men of Westerness, the Dúnedain of the north, became divided into petty realms and lordships, and their foes devoured them one by one. Ever they dwindled into the years, until their glory passed, leaving only green mounds in the grass. A brief pause there. There is an interesting parallel uh, mention of this in the Fellowship of the Ring book. It's not mentioned in uh, the TV show, or excuse me, it's not mentioned in the movies, but when the hobbits are traveling from uh, the Shire to Bree. They travel through a bunch of different areas that are basically mounds of grass and ruins 
and great stones, and they find these um, amazing swords that used to be relics of that time. This is that area, the petty realms of the, uh, of the Numenorians that sort of broke up into, um, that broke up into these little maybe fiefdoms or maybe like not necessarily villages but ruling areas uh, and they all fell because they were stronger together but they they couldn't band together anymore it, it just wasn't there they didn't have the numbers at length naught was left of them but a strange people wandering secretly in the wild and other men knew not their homes nor their purpose of the journeys and they in Im and save in Imladris, in the house of Elrond, their ancestry was forgotten. Yet the shards of the sword were cherished during many lives of men by the heirs of Isildur, and their line, from father to son, remained unbroken. In the south, the realm of Gondor endured, and for a time its splendor grew, until it recalled the wealth and majesty of Numenor ere it fell. High towers the people of Gondor built, and strong places, and havens of many ships, and the winged crown of the kings of men was held in awe by people of the many lands and tongues. For many a year the white tree grew before the king's house in Minas Anor, the seed of that tree which Isildur brought out of the deeps of the sea from Numenor, the seed, and the seed before that came from Avalone, and before that from Valinor in the days before days when the world was young. I kind of already mentioned this before, but the ancestry of that tree just keeps going and going and going. Yet at last, in the wearing of the swift years of Middle-earth, Gondor waned, and the line of Menelvil, son of Anorian, failed, for the blood of the Numenorians became much mingled with that of other men, and their power and wisdom diminished, and their lifespan was shortened, and the watch upon Mordor slumbered. And in the days of Telen, of Telemnar, the third and twentieth of the line of Meneldil, a plague came upon the dark winds out of the east, and it smote the king and his children, and many of the people of Gondor perished. Then the forts on the borders of Mordor were deserted, and Minas Ithil was emptied of its people, and the evil entered again into the black lands secretly, and the ashes of Gorgoroth were stirred as by a cold wind, for dark shapes gathered there. It is said that these were indeed the Ulari, whom Sauron called the Nazgul, the Nine Ringwraiths. And they had long remained hidden, but returned now to prepare the ways of their master, for he had begun to grow again. And in the days of Earnil, E-A-R-N-I-L. They made their first stroke, and they came by night out of Mordor over the passes of the Mountain of Shadow, and took Minas Ethiel for their abode, and they made it a place of such dread that none dared to look upon it. Thereafter it was called Minas Morgul, the Tower of Sorcery, and Minas Morgul was ever at war with Minas Anor in the west. When Osgiliath, which, in its wane, when in the waning of the people, had long been deserted, became a place of ruin and a city of ghosts. But Minas Anor, and it endured, and it was named anew Minas Tirith. Sorry, I lost my place there for a second. 
But Minas Anor endured, and it was named anew Minas Tirith, the Tower of Guard. For there were kings, for there the kings caused to be built in the citadel a white tower, very tall and fair, and its eyes were upon and its eye was upon many lands. Proud still and strong was that city, and in the white tree and in it the white tree still flowered for a while before the house of the kings. And there the remnant of the Numenorians still defended the passage of the river against the terrors of Minas Morgul, against all the enemies of the West, orcs and monsters and evil men. And thus the lands behind them, west of Anduin, were protected from war and destruction. This is where we get Boromir's passionate plea to give Gondor the ring. By the blood of our people, he says, are your lands kept safe. Give Gondor the ring. We can handle it. We can take it. We've been doing this for years. But what Boromir doesn't understand is that the ring would not help him. Let's continue. Still Minas Tirith endured after the days of Earnor, son of Earnil, and the last king of Gondor. If you've watched my TikTok video, videos for a while, you have likely seen my video on Aarnor, the last king of Gondor, before uh, Aragorn reclaims it. Let's find out what happens to him. He it was that rode alone to the gates of Minas Morgul to meet the challenge of the Morgul Lord, the Ringwraith, the, the Witch King of Angmar. And he, and he met him in single combat. But he was betrayed by the Nazgul and taken alive into the city of torment. And no living man saw him ever again. Now Aarnor left no heirs. But when the line of the kings failed, the stewards of the house of Marvil, the faithful, ruled the city and its ever-shrinking realm. And the Rohirrim, the horsemen of the north, came and dwelt in the green lands of Rohan, which before was named Kalinardahan, and was a part of the kingdom of Gondor. And the Rohirrim aided the lords of the city in their wars. And northward, beyond the falls of Rauros and the gates of Argonath, there were, as yet, other defenses, powers more ancient, of which men knew little, against whom the evil, the things of evil, did not dare to move until the ripening of time their dark lord Sauron should come forth again. And until that time was come, never again after the days of Iarnil did the Nazgul dare cross the river or to come forth from their city in shape visible to men. In all the days of the Third Age after the fall of Gilgalad, Master Elrond abode in Imladris. And he gathered there many elves and other folk of wisdom and power from among all the kindreds of Middle-earth. I'd like to think Bilbo was probably included in that somewhere. And he preserved through many lives of men the memory of all that had been fair. And the house of Elrond was a refuge for the weary and the oppressed, and a treasury of good counsel and wise lore. In that house were harbored the heirs of Isildur in childhood old age because of their kinship because of the kinship of their blood with Elrond himself and because he knew in his wisdom 
that one should come from that line to whom a great part was appointed in the last deeds of that age. And until that time came, the shards of Elendil's sword were given into the keeping of Elrond, when the days of the Dúnedain darkened, and they became a wandering people. In Eriador, Imladris was the chief dwelling of the High Elves, but at the Grey Havens of Lindong there abode also a remnant of the people of Gilgalad, the Elven King. At times they would wander into the lands of Eriador, but for the most part they dwelt near the shores of the sea, building and tending the Elven ships wherein these of the firstborn, who grew weary of the world, set sail into the uttermost west. Círdan, the shipwright, was lord of the havens and mighty among the wise. Of the three rings that the elves had preserved unsullied, no open word was ever spoken among the wise, and few even of the Eldar knew that they were where they were bestowed. Yet after the fall of Sauron, their power was ever at work, and where they abode, there mirth also dwelt, and all things were unstained by the griefs of time. Therefore, ere the third age had ended, the elves perceived that the ring of sapphire was with Elrond in the fair city of Rivendell, upon whose house the stars of heaven most brightly shone, whereas the ring of Adama, Adamant was in the land of Lorien, where dwelt the Lady Galadriel. A queen she was of the Woodland Elves, the wife of Celeborn of Doriath, yet she herself was of the Noldor, and remembered the days before in Valinor. And she was the mightiest and fairest of all the elves that remained in Middle-earth. But the Red Ring remained hidden until the end, and none save Elrond and Galadriel and Círdan knew to whom it had been committed. Thus it was that in two domains the bliss and beauty of the elves remained still undiminished while the age endured. In Imladris and in Lothlorien, the hidden land between Celebrant and Anduin, where the trees bore flowers of gold, and no orc or evil thing dared ever come. Yet many voices were heard among the elves foreboding that if Sauron should come again, then either he would find the ruling ring that was lost, or, at the best, his enemies would discover it and destroy it. But in either chance, the powers of the three rings must then fail, and all things maintained by them must fade. So the elves and so the elves should pass into the twilight and the dominion of age of excuse me and the dominion of men begin and so indeed it has since befallen the one and the seven and the nine are destroyed and the three have passed away and with them the third age is ended and the tales of the eldar in middle earth draw to their close. Those were the fading years, and in them the last flowering of the elves east of the sea came to its winter. In that time the Noldor walked still in the hitherlands, mightiest and fairest of the children of the world, and their tongues were still heard by mortal ears. Many things of beauty and wonder remained on earth in that time, and many things also of evil and dread Orcs there were, and trolls, and dragons, and fell beasts, and strange creatures old and wise in the woods whose names are forgotten. Dwarves still labored in the hills, 
and wrought with patient craft works of metal and stone that none now can rival. But the dominion of men was preparing, and all things were changing, until at last the Dark Lord arose in Mirkwood again. Just want to briefly mention here, I'm not sure if they do mention it in this book, but in case they don't, Gandalf has the third ring. It was given to him by, uh, I believe it was Gil-Galad. I believe Gil-Galad gave him the ring. Or it might have been Círdan. I believe it was Círdan, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Let's continue. Now of old, the name of the forest that was Greenwood the Great and its wide halls and aisles were the haunts of many beasts and birds of bright song. And there was the realm of King Thranduil under the, the oak and the beech. But after many years, when, nigh, when well nigh a third of that age of the world had passed, a darkness crept slowly through the wood from the southward and fear walked there in shadowy glades. Fell beasts came hunting, and cruel and evil creatures laid their snares. Then the name of the forest was changed, and Mirkwood it was called, for the nightshade lay deep there, and few dared to pass through, save only the, in the north, where Thranduil's people still held the evil at bay. Whence it came, few could tell, and it was long ere even the wise should discover it. For the shadow, for, excuse me, it was the shadow of Sauron and the sign of his return. For coming out of the wastes of the east, he took up his abode in the south of the forest, and slowly he grew and took shape there again. In the dark hills he made his dwelling and wrought there his sorcery. And all folk feared the sorcerer of Dol Guldor. And yet they knew not at first how great was their peril. Even as the first shadows were felt in Mirkwood, there appeared in the west of Middle-earth the Istari, whom men called the Wizards. None knew at the time whence they were, save Círdan of the Havens, and only to Elrond and Galadriel did they reveal that they came over from the sea. But afterwards it was said among the elves that they were messengers sent by the lords of the west, meaning the Valar, to contest the power of Sauron, if he should rise again, and to move the elves and men and all living things of good will to valiant deeds. In the likeness of men they appeared, old but vigorous, and they changed little with the years, and aged but slowly. Though great cares lay upon them, great wisdom they had, and many powers of mind and hand. Long they journeyed far and wide among elves and men, and held converse with the beasts and the birds. And the peoples of Middle-earth gave to them many names. Which, a fun fact, I was filming a TikTok video about Gandalf's names and realized that he has, at the very least, 12. And I may have missed some. So, yes, many names is an understatement. <laughs> Alright, let's continue. And the peoples of Middle-earth gave them many names. For their true names they did not reveal. Chief among them were those whom the elves called Mithrandir and Kurumir, but men in the north named them Gandalf and Saruman. Of these, Kurunir was the eldest and came first, 
And after him came Mithrandir, and Radagast, and the others of the Astari, who went to the east of Middle-earth, and did not come into these tales. Radagast was the friend of all beasts and birds, but Kurunir went most among men, and he was subtle in speech and skilled in all the devices of smithcraft. Mithrandir was closest in council with Elrond and the elves. He wandered far in the north and west, and never made and made excuse me, and made never in any land any lasting abode. But Kurunir journeyed into the east, and when he returned, he dwelt at Orthanc in the ring of Isengard, which the Numenorians made in the days of their power. Uh, brief fan theory moment. I'll, I'll pause here for a brief moment. It is thought that because Sauron went into the east, he potentially may have uh, ended the lives of the two blue wizards. Um, I have no proof to back that up other than the two blue wizards went into the east, and so did Saruman. And the blue wizards are never heard from again, and the people of the east and of the south still side with Sauron when the original trilogy is written. So, uh, the blue two blue wizards, uh, by the way, um, are named Alatar and Palando. So let's continue. Ever most vigilant was Mithrandir. And he it was that most doubted the darkness in Mirkwood. For though many deemed that it was wrought by the ringwraiths, he feared it, that it was indeed the first shadow of Sauron returning. And he went to Dol Guldor, and the sorcerer fled from him. And there was a watchful peace for a long while. But at length the shadow returned, and its power increased. And in that time was first made the Council of the Wise that is called the White Council. And therein were Elrond, and Galadriel, and Círdan, and other lords of the Eldar. And with them were Mithrandir, and Kurunir. And Kurunir, that was Saruman the White, was chosen to be their chief, for he had most studied the devices of Sauron of old. Galadriel indeed had wished that Mithrandir should be the head of the council, and Saruman begrudged them that, for his pride and desire of mastery was grown great. But Mithrandir refused the office, since he would not he would have no ties and no allegiance, save to those who sent him save to those who sent him, and he would abide in no place, nor be subject to any summons. But Saruman now began to study the lore of the ring, and their making, and their history. Now the shadow grew ever greater, and the hearts of Elrond and Mithrandir darkened. Therefore, on a time, Mithrandir, at the peril, went again to Dol Guldor and the pits of the sorcerer, and he discovered the truth of his fears, and escaped, and returning to Elrond, said, True, alas, is our guess. This is not one of the Ulari, as many have long supposed. It is Sauron himself. I suppose I should be doing Gandalf, a Gandalf voice for this. Excuse me. Sorry, I need to get into it. Haven't urged today. True, alas, is our guess. This is not one of the Ulari, as many have long supposed. It is Sauron himself, who has taken shape again, and now grows apace. And he is gathering all again, the ring 
to his hand, and he seeks ever for news of the One, and of the heirs of Isildur, if they still live on Earth. And Elrond answered, and here comes my Elrond impression, in the hour that Isildur took the ring and would not surrender it, this doom was wrought, and Sauron, that Sauron should return. Yet the one was lost, said Nithrandir, and while it still lies hid, we can master the enemy, if we gather our strength and tarry not too long. I hope that was uh, an appropriate impression. I by no means claim to be an expert, but here we are. Then the White Council was summoned, and Mithrandir urged them to swift deeds. But Kurufin spoke against him, and counseled them to wait yet, and to watch. And here comes the Christopher Lee impression. I believe not, he said, that the one will ever be found again in Middle-earth. Into Anduin it fell, and long ago, I deem, it was rolled into the sea. There it shall lie until the end when all the world is broken and the deeps are removed. Therefore naught was done at that time, though Elrond's heart misgave him, and he said to Mithrandir, Nonetheless, I forebode that the one will be found, will yet be found, and then war will rise again, and in that war this age will be ended. Indeed, in a second darkness it will end, unless some strange chance delivers us that my eyes cannot see. Many are the strange chances of the world, said Mithrandir, and help oft shall come from those the hand of the weak when the wise falter. Thus the wise were troubled, but not as yet perceived that Kurunir had turned to dark thoughts and was already a traitor in heart, for he desired that he and no other should find the great ring, so that he might wield it himself and order all of the world to his will. Too long he had studied the ways of Sauron in hope to defeat him, and now he envied him as a rival rather than hated his work, and he deemed that the ring, which was Sauron's, would seek for its master as he became manifested once more. But if he were driven out again, then it would lie hid Therefore, he was willing to play with the peril and let Sauron for the time, for be, and, excuse me, and let Sauron be for a time, hoping by his craft to forestall both his friends and the enemy when the ring should appear. He set a watch upon the gladdened fields, but soon discovered that the servants of Gul Dol Guldor were searching all the ways of the river in that region. Then he perceived that Sauron had also learned of the manner of Isildur's end, and he grew afraid and withdrew to Isengard and fortified it. And ever he probed deeper into the lore of the Ring of Power and the art of their forging. But he spoke of none of this to the council, hoping still that they might be the first, that he might be the first to hear the news of the ring. He gathered a great host of spies, and many of these were birds. For Radagast lent him his aid divining naught of his treachery, and deeming that this was but part of the watch upon the enemies. But ever the shadow in Mirkwood grew deeper, and to dull Guldor evil things repaired out of all the dark places of the world. And they were united again under one will, 
and their malice was directed against the elves and the survivors of Numenor. Therefore, at last, the council was again summoned, and the lore of the rings was much debated. But Mithrandir spoke to the council, saying, It is not needed that the, that the ring should be found, for while it abides on earth and is not unmade, still the power that it holds will live, and Sauron will grow and have hope. The might of the elves and the elf friends is less now than of old. Soon he will be too strong for you, even without the great ring, for he rules the nine, and of the seven he has recovered three. We must strike. To this, Kurunir now assented, desiring that Sauron should be thrust from Dol Guldor, which was nigh to the river, and should have leisure to search there no longer. Therefore, for the last time, he aided the council, and they put forth their strength, and they assailed Dol Guldor, and drove Sauron from his hold, and Mirkwood, for a brief while, was made wholesome again. But their stroke was too late, for the Dark Lord had foreseen it, and he had long prepared for all his movements, and the Ulari, his nine servants, had gone before him to make ready for his coming. Therefore, his flight was but a feint, meaning a fake, faint, F-E-I-N-T. Therefore, his flight was but a feint, and he soon returned, and ere the wise could prevent him, he re-entered his kingdom of Mordor, and reared once again the dark tower of Barad-dûr. And in the year, and in that year, the White Council met for the last time, and Kurunir withdrew to Isengard, and took counsel with none save himself. Save meaning except. Orcs were mustering, and far to the east and south the wild peoples were arming. Then in the midst of gathering fear, the rumor of war, the for, and the rumor of, hang on, let me try this again. Then in the midst of gathering fear and the rumor of war, the foreboding of Elrond was proven true, and the One Ring was indeed found again. By a chance more strange than even Mithrandir had foreseen. And it was hidden from Kurunir and from Sauron, for it had been taken from Anduin long ere they sought for it, being found by one of the small fisherfolk that dwelt by the river ere the kings failed in Gondor. And by its finder it was brought beyond search into the dark hidings under the roots of the mountains. There it dwelt until even in the year of the assault upon Dol Guldor it was found again by a wayfarer, fleeing into the deeps of the earth from the pursuit of the orcs, and passed into a far distant country, even to the lands of the Pyrianoth, the little people, the halflings, whom dwelt in the west of Eriador. And ere that day they had been held of small account by elves and by men. And neither Sauron nor any of the wise save Mithrandir had in all their counsels given thought to them. Now by fortune and his vigilance, Mithrandir first learned of the ring, ere Sauron got news of it. Yet he was dismayed and in doubt, for too great was the evil power of this thing for any of the wise to wield, unless, like Kurunir, he wished himself to become a tyrant and a dark lord in his turn. But neither could they be concealed from Sauron forever nor could it be unmade by the craft of the elves. Therefore, with the help of the Dúnedain of the north, Mithrandir set a watch upon the land of the Perianath, 
and bided his time. But Sauron had many ears, and soon he heard rumors of the One Ring, which above all things he desired. And he sent forth the Nazgul to take it, and war was enkindled. And the battle with Sauron, and in the battle with Sauron, the Third Age ended, even as it had begun. But those who saw the things that were done in that time, deeds of valor and wonder, have elsewhere told the tale of the War of the Ring, and how it ended, both in victory unlooked for and in sorrow long foreseen. Here, let it be said that in those days, the heir of Isildur arose in the north, and he took the shards of the sword of Elendil, and in Imladris they were reforged. And he went to war, a great captain of men. He was Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the nine and thirtieth heir in the right line from Isildur. And yet more like to Isildur than any before him. Battle there was in Rohan, and Kurunir the traitor was thrown down and Isengard broken. And before the city of Gondor, a great field was fought. And the Lord of Morgul, captain of Sauron, there passed into darkness. And the heir of Isildur led the host of the west to the black gates of Mordor. In that last battle were Mithrandir, the sons of Elrond, the king of Rohan, the lords of Gondor, and the heir of Isildur with the Dúnedain of the north. There, at the last, they looked upon death and defeat, and all their valor was in vain, for Sauron was too strong. Yet in that hour was put forth, excuse me, yet in that hour was put to the proof that which Mithrandir had spoken, and help came from the hands of the weak when the wise faltered. For, as many songs have since sung, it was the Perianath, the little people, dwellers in hillsides and meadows, that brought them deliverance. For Frodo the halfling, it is said, at the bidding of Mithrandir, took on himself the burden, and alone with his servant he passed through peril and darkness and came at last, in Sauron's despite, even to Mount Doom. And there, into the fires where it was wrought, he cast the great ring of power. And so at last it was unmade, and its evil consumed. Then Sauron failed, and he was utterly vanquished, and passed away like a shadow of malice. And the tower of Barad-dûr crumbled to ruin, at the rumor of their fall, many lands trembled. Thus, peace came again, and a new spring opened on earth, and the heir of Isildur was crowned king of Gondor and Arnor, and the might of the Dúnedain was lifted up and their glory renewed. In the courts of Minas Anor, the white tree flowered again, for the seedling was found by Mithrandir in the snows of Mindolwin that rose tall and white above the city of Gondor. And while it still grew there, the elder days were not wholly forgotten in the hearts of the kings. Now all these things were achieved for the most part by the counsel and vigilance of Mithrandir. And in the last few days, he was revealed as a lord of great reverence. 
and clad in white, he rode into battle. But not until the time came for him to depart was it known that he had long guarded the red ring of fire. At the first, that ring had been entrusted to Círdan, Lord of the Havens, but he surrendered it to Mithrandir, for he knew whence he came and whither at last he should return. Now take this ring, he said, for thy labors and thy cares will be heavy. But in all it will support thee and defend thee from weariness. For this is the ring of fire, and herewith maybe thou shalt rekindle hearts to the valor of old in a world that grows chill. But as for me, my heart is with the sea, and I will dwell by the gray shores, guarding the havens until the last ship sails. Then I shall await thee. White was that ship, and long it was a building, and long it was awaited, the end of which Círdan had spoken. But when all these things were done, and the heir of Isildur had taken up the lordship of men, and the dominion of the West had passed to him, then it was made plain that the power of the three rings also was ended. And to the firstborn, the world grew old and gray. In that time, the last of the Noldor set sail again from the havens and left Middle-earth forever. And latest of all the keepers of the three rings rode to the sea. And Master Elrond took there the ship that Círdan had, already, had made already. In the twilight of autumn, it sailed out of Mithlond until the seas of the bent world fell away beneath it, and the winds of the round sky troubled it no more, and bore upon the high airs above the mists of the world, it passed into the ancient west, and an end was come for the Eldar of story and of song. Thus ends the Silmarillion. The end. Thank you all so much for being here with me, for sticking with us for so long through the technical difficulties and the dog interruptions and the missed weeks because of work. Thank you. Hi, it's Don again. This is me recording and ending after I have just finished editing the final part of Silmarillion Sunday, and I just want to say thank you so much. I am incredibly grateful to everybody that is listening to this right now, that showed up to my live streams, that watched it on YouTube and is now listening to it again. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, it is an absolute pleasure to be able to share my passion with all of you. Just a brief reminder, if you are interested in donating to my stream so that I can continue to do things like this on my Twitch channel, 
My Venmo is at DonM72, or you can reach out to me on any of the various social media platforms that I am on. My screen name across all of them is DonMarshall72. Thank you all again for being here. I'll see you next time.